Against more sophisticated players, you want to re-raise with what's called a polarized range. I generally have less fear than most of my opponents and don't worry nearly as much about busting up for the money. What is my opponent's hand range given the position they raised from, who, the, who they are as a player, all the things that you know about them? Everything you've learned about your opponent by watching his play will help you determine your course of action in this hand. Well, greetings, everybody. This is Steve Fredland welcoming you to the Rec Poker Podcast, officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack and partnered with Next Level Poker, our official tour, the Poker is Fun Tour, and PokerCoaching.com. A couple of quick announcements before we get into it. All in for Africa 7 is coming up Saturday, October 28th, 10.30 a.m. at Running Aces. And All in for Africa's Hawaiian Dream Winner Take Most Tournament will be on Thursday, November 2nd at 6 p.m. at Running Aces. And you can get details for both available at Running Aces' uh, website, which is runaces.com. Now, last week we looked at pre-flop considerations when there's no action before us. And this week we're going to look at our pre-flop uh, action when there is a raise in front of us, including defending our blinds and the sizing of any of our re-raises. So several listeners uh, sent us this topic including Dan Young and Mike Johnson. So shout out to you guys. Thanks for your engagement with the podcast. So we're going to hear from our experts, and then after that, I'm going to give my thoughts. But primarily, uh, I've also pulled some things from other various poker resources. So uh, I've pulled together some other things uh, on this topic specifically that I'll include after we hear from our experts, which include Minnesota Hall of Famer Mike Schneider, World Series of Poker bracelet winner Chris Fox Wallace, and author and coach and just downright beast of a player, Jonathan Little. So we're going to do a quick commercial for Running Aces, and then we will get into our discussion. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. People are like, are you little? Because your name says you're little. I say, no, I'm not little. Hello, this is Jonathan Little for PokerCoaching.com. And when you're facing a raise and then people fold around to you, you have to figure out if you want to fold, call, or re-raise, right? Those are your options. So typically, if you have a garbage hand, the vast majority of the time, you're just going to be folding. So don't think that you need to be re-raising with queen three offsuit because that's your lucky hand or anything like that. You need to make sure you're playing relatively solid ranges, but you have to figure out what a solid range looks like. Um, there are two ranges you typically want to consider playing. One is called a linear range, and that's just going to be your best hands. That's going to be stuff like ace-10 suited and better, ace-jack offsuit and better, king-queen, maybe king-jack suited, and then something like pocket eights or better. Those are all just good hands you can re-raise with. And if your opponents are calling stations, that's going to work out pretty well for you because they're going to be calling your re-raise with stuff like ace-3 offsuit and king-10 offsuit, right? So you are dominating them with a lot of hands that they are going to... You're dominating a lot of hands that they're going to call your re-raise with. So that's a good strategy against players who are typically not playing too well, who are playing at a very low level, who raise and then just want to see the flop. So that's a good strategy against them. Against more sophisticated players, you want to re-raise with what's called a polarized range. And that's going to be your absolute best hands, like aces, kings, queens, jacks, ace, king, maybe ace, queen. And then some stuff that may not necessarily be good enough to call with. And this is going to be hands like low-suited aces or marginal suited connectors like nine seven suited or eight five suited or maybe an ace with a low kicker where you're re-raising because you don't think your opponent's going to call your re-raise too often in the hand like ace three offsuit so um as you expect your opponent to call your re-raise more often you want to re-raise with hands that are going to flop better right so nine you'd much rather three bet someone who's going to call your re-raise a decent amount of the time with nine seven suited as opposed to ace-three offsuit, because ace-three offsuit is going to play poorly. But if you think your opponent's either going to fold or four-bet almost every time, whenever you three-bet, 
then you might as well have the ace x because then you take away some of the hands that people will be three betting with. There's a lot of value in having a blocker in your hand, and a blocker is a card that makes it less likely for your opponent to have a good hand. And when you have an ace in your hand, it makes it less likely that your opponents have pocket aces or ace king or ace queen, right? So you have to figure out what range you want to re-raise first. And then you want to develop a calling range based on your re-raising range. Typically, the re-raising range is a good place to start. You always want to figure out how wide do I want my nut range to be, my premium range, and then go from there. But typically, hands that you want to call with are going to be hands like queen-jack suited, jack-10 suited, um, pocket eights, pocket sevens, pocket sixes. All these hands flop particularly well, and you want to see a flop with them. So how do you see a flop? Well, you don't re-raise and then get four bets, right? That, that's, that's how you don't see a flop. So um, there is a range that flops particularly well, and you usually want to do everything you can to see a flop with that range. So good big cards that are suited and um, good suited connectors and medium pairs are nice hands to call with. But preflop is not quite as simple as a lot of people think it is. They want to think that I can just have one re-raising range for all situations and that's it. And that's just absolutely not true. Like, for example, if un- the player under the gun raises and he's tight, you probably need to have no three-betting range. Whereas if you're on the button and the player in the cutoff raises and he raises a lot of hands, you can three-bet incredibly wide. So it's not quite as easy as, oh, I three-bet these hands in these spots. I actually discuss this a lot in my most recent book, Mastering Small Stakes No Limit Hold'em. So um, check that out. I explain how to adjust to your various opponents and which ranges to three bet against various positions in general. So as for the three bet size, typically I'm three betting to about 2.75 times my opponent's bet when I'm in position and about 3.5 times their bet when I'm out of position. And that's because when you're out of position, you don't mind picking up the pot quite as much. Um, When there's a raise and someone calls before you, which sets up a squeeze situation, a lot of people think they have to squeeze every time they have the opportunity. Um, Whenever that's the case, I do a decent amount of calling because I don't mind seeing a flop. And as in general, in general, as someone raises, someone calls and someone else calls, that's going to do trigger a cascade of callers, unless they're very aggressive people yet to act who think they're supposed to re-raise a lot. And playing pots in position with ideally hands that are gonna that are gonna flop reasonably well is gonna work out. So you don't want to be calling a raise and a call with stuff like King 10 offsuit, because that's gonna make top pair bad kicker and you don't want to make top pair bad kicker you want to be making stuff like flushes and straights so you want to make sure you're calling in those spots with hands that have implied odds meaning you're putting in a small amount of money now to try to win a lot of money later typically as the pot becomes more multi-way you need to be trying to make stronger post-flop hands so definitely shy away from hands like ace nine offsuit or king 10 offsuit those are going to get you in a lot of trouble but you certainly can squeeze. And again, I'm, I'm typically squeezing based on how I think my opponents are going to play. If they're going to call my squeeze every time, I just three bet with my absolute best hands and don't really bluff too much. But if I think they're going to fold sometimes, I'm going to start three betting with a, a polarized range with you know eight five suited. Because whenever you three bet with eight five suited, you have to understand that when your opponents call, they're often going to have decent big cards. And eight five suited is very rarely dominated. Whereas a hand like king jack offsuit is somewhat often dominated. That said... If your opponents are going to call your 3-bet and then just check fold every time after the flop, I think it's perfectly fine to 3-bet a lot because they're going to be giving up way too often. Now, um, when you're in the blinds, this is another gigantic question. How protective should you be when someone raises from late position? Well, the answer is often pretty protective as long as their raise size is somewhat small. As they start raising larger, like 2.5 or 3 or 3.5 or 7 big blinds like you sometimes see in small stakes cash games, you can play pretty tight because they're risking a lot to win a little. But if they're min-raising, they're risking a little to win, you know, they're risking two big blinds to win the small blind and the big blind, 1.5 big blinds, right? So that's a situation where you do need to be quite protective. And um, the question mentioned there, there are some instant muck hands, but what about small pairs and suited connectors? Well, small pairs and suited connectors should be played almost under all scenarios because those are actually pretty strong hands. So uh, hands that are instant mucks, to me, are really just only like the bottom 10 or 15% of hands, like 8-2 offsuit. 8-4 offsuit, 8-5 offsuit, 7-2 suited, these are all reasonable whenever you're facing a min-raise. But um, this is a very big topic, and again, I discuss this in depth in my newest book, Mastering Small Stakes No Limit Hold'em. So um, that's going to be it for this question for me. I want to thank you all for being here today, listening to this podcast. This has been Jonathan Little for PokerCoaching.com. He's won a million dollars! 
Hi, this is Mike Schneider of Poker is Fun Tour, URL PIFTPoker.com, and also on Twitter at PIFTPoker. All right, so discussing a little bit of pre-flop here where there's already a raise to us. And for me, I mean, the number one factor is thinking about the opponent. Some guys play really tight. They enter one pot every hour and a half, and those guys, I mean... Generally, I'm not going to give them much action, whereas there's other guys, you know, Robbie Wazwaz of the world, the, uh, I guess I'm not going to name too many names here, but just the guys that play a lot of hands. I look down and I see a hand like 10-9 suited. I'm uh, way more likely to want to either call or even three bet with that hand. And so you might say, well, what makes you decide which way to go? And a lot of that will depend on looking behind me and either A, seeing if it looks like players are already ready to fold, or B, what are the player types behind me? I mean, because, I mean, I, isolating Robbie Wazwaz is fine, but if I can, if if I know that my call is going to make it likely that a couple of players that I deem not good, not good players, they're going to give me action too, I might be welcome, welcome to that fact, especially if they're in one of the blinds and I'm still last to act, I might be happy to have them come along and see a flop three ways so a lot of that can depend on I mean who the player is how many hands they're playing as well as who are the players that are still left to act behind me and and then deciding do I want to play hands with those players or would I rather it be a heads up scenario and then a hand like 10-9 suited is a perfectly good three bet candidate because uh a lot of times when the flop misses you, you may get folds, and a lot of times the flop hits you, they don't expect it's going to hit you, so you get a little bit of the best of both worlds going on there. Then if I do choose the 3-bet, I mean, I when I'm in position, I mean, never really, I don't want to say they're really a standard size, but in general, I mean, it's just say the blinds are 500, 1,000, somebody opens a 2,500, in position, I can make it anywhere from like five to six thousand, maybe seven thousand, but really not any bigger than seven thousand ever. And I, I generally try to keep my three bets a little bit smaller, just due to uh, not really wanting to have to face a huge four bets. Or, I mean, even granted, a lot of those hands, if I do get four bet, I'm just gonna fold. But not, not giving them a incentive to try to re-raise all in either comes into play too so depending on what their chip stack is I mean you manipulate your sizing based on how many chips they have or you have just to be able to try to control what their options are and whether it leaves it so that you can fold the hand or maybe you want to send the message to them that their re-raise is not going to ever get you to fold which in turn maybe gets you a few more folds and just different little mind games and considerations along those lines with uh, bet sizing relative to how many chips they have and how many you have. And then what would change for me if there was a call before me? I Again, it depends on the tightness of the players, but I, especially when you get like a 12 to 18 big blind stack, I love the squeeze all in play. I know I've gotten caught doing it really light many times, but when you sit down and break down the math of what what's already in the pot relative to what you have to risk, it's it's just such a great play. When when you're putting your stack in and if everybody folds, you're gaining 25, 30, 35, 40 percent gain to what you have. It's almost always going to be worth the risk when you consider what percent of the time both players fold to you and then put that math against the times you do get a call and when you get a call you still have equity too anywhere from 20 percent at worst 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 case on up to 45 percent or more even with those uh, crappy hands like jack 10 suited that you decided to squeeze with it's just uh usually too compelling of a price to not strongly consider it unless you're at a stage of the tournament where there's pay jumps that come into play that may make you want to play tighter or or if you are a little bit before the money and you are trying to play for a cash, which, I mean, you can do that if you want. Some people, I like to try to play to win, so I'm usually willing to make that risk along 
with that risk for me also knowing that other players might be folding more hands because they are playing to try to get the money like I'm all for doing those kind of squeeze plays closer to the bubble because I generally have less fear than most of my opponents and don't worry nearly as much about busting up for the money since with tournaments most of the the cash is in the final couple of places and I like to try to do what I can to give myself the chance to make one of those deep runs all right so now I'll talk a little bit about uh how protective a player should be uh, against or with their blinds against late position raises for me a lot of the offsuit hands are just automatic folds. Like I, I like hands that can either flop a big hand or a big draw. So I mean, pocket pairs, even pocket twos, is fine to defend against the standard open raise. Just, just because of the fact that if it flops a set, you have a good chance to get a lot of chips. I, I do like those suited connectors, even the small ones, unless. You're getting to the point here where once you get down to like 10 big blinds or so, then you might start folding those tiny pocket pairs and waiting for a better spot or waiting for those uh, those small suited connectors, just folding them because then you yourself don't have enough chips to make it worthwhile to uh, risk 30% of your stack or 15% of your stack just to see a flop and completely whiff and have to check fold. But assuming normal normal stack sizes with some plays i like the suited connectors i like the small pocket pairs i like two broadway cards hands like asex offsuit generally always fold those hands which i know a lot of players do play them but to me when you're out of position they just aren't aren't worth it in terms of you flop an ace you're either going to lose a lot of chips if they have you beat or win a relatively small pot because your opponent's going to be able to control the size of the pot and likewise you aren't going to want to invest a ton of chips to the hand because if you do your ace is probably no good so i i generally shy away from playing the offsuit ace hands that aren't aren't large aces so say like ace 10 offsuit or higher maybe ace 9 or ace 8 depending on the looseness of the player but yeah that's uh, about all i've got for that and so Again, this is uh, Mike Schneider of Poker is Fun Tour, URLPIFTPoker.com. I'd, uh, on Twitter at PIFTPoker, I'd love it if you would follow that Twitter handle or my own Twitter handle, which is SchneidsPoker, S-C-H-N-E-I-D-S-P-O-K-E-R. And I would love to hear uh, if you do read on the PIFT website about some of the different form formats that we'd like to play future tournaments. If you have any fun, unique, interesting ways that you play poker at home and home games and think it might be a fun way for us to implement in a tournament setting at a casino, shoot me a message either on Twitter or use the Contact Us page on the PIFT Poker website or any other means that you can uh, reach out to me. I'd love to hear what you have. Until next time, thanks. Fox here from Next Level Poker. I think you're going to get tired of hearing me say it depends, but that is so often the case when we don't have an exact hand history to work with. With these more general questions, it always depends. So the way I usually handle these kinds of questions from my students is to try to give them the tools to make the decisions once they're in a more specific situation. That usually involves knowing which things to consider and how to prioritize them. So when you're dealing with a pre-flop raise, um, you want to think about the stack sizes. This is always very important. I know a lot of rec poker players or tournament players, and in particular, it's very important in tournaments. You want to know what the stack sizes are. That's going to affect all of your decisions. And then you consider your own hand. You consider the raiser's likely range, and you base that on their position, their table image, their stack size, all the things that you use to determine what an opponent's range is, all the things that you know about them and what they want right then and how tight or loose they might be and how much they raised in body, um, language, and all those other things including their ability, um, these things are all important things to consider. In essence, you're thinking, is there a way to make money in this spot? And if there is, what is the most profitable play? And the other thing you're going to hear get tired of me saying is, consider all of your options. 
Just because you found an option that's profitable doesn't mean it's the best option because there might be something more profitable. Can always consider all of your options. If it's deep stacked, depending on how deep stacked it is, you may want to three bet someone with a pair of fours if you think they're likely to fold, and if they don't fold, they're going to flat. If you think they're going to re raise you a lot, you may not want to re raise with those fours, and you may want to flat and see a flop. If the stacks are short, you may want to go all in with your fours over the top of their raise to re-steal, or you may just want to fold if you think they're going to call when you when you re-raise. But you almost never want to flat with a short stack with a small pair like that. But every situation is different. There are times when you can do anything. So you think about what is my opponent's hand range given the position they raised from, who the, who they are as a player, all the things that you know about them. And then think, how does my hand and my stack size play against this range and this player? So a couple examples, if the blinds are 200, 400, and uh, a tight player under the gun makes it 1,400, right? He's raised a little more than he usually would, a little more than most people usually would. He's been a tight player, and he's in early position, so we're going to put him on a big range. But that doesn't mean we just fold. It means we now assess things based on his range being really just above the shoulders as we say his range is going to be hands like tens plus and ace king Um, then you think about stack sizes if the stacks are short you just throw away almost everything and you you probably get it in with kings and aces and you have to make your decision about queens and jacks um, given the exact situation but if the stacks are deep then sometimes it's a good thing that he has a big hand. Is he a strong player or a bad player? If he's not a great player, if he tends to get stuck on overpairs, if he can't let go of a hand, then this might be a great situation. Even though he's raised a lot, if the stacks are deep enough and you're calling off less than 5% of your stack, the effective stack, so you and he both have more than 20 times what he's raised, then it might be a great spot to see a flop with a suited connector, suited one gap, small pair, those kinds of hands. Small pairs are really better in those spots than this the suited hands, but any of those hands could be a good spot to see a flop. If there are a lot of people to act behind you, it's probably not a good spot to see a flop because somebody may wake up and re-raise behind you, or a couple more people may flat and make your life hard after the flop because they have position on you. So you're thinking about his position, your position, his stack, your stack, his range, your hand, the people to act behind you, how they play, how many of them there are. There's so many things to think about, but you think about as many of those things as you can. And you default, in tournaments anyway, to being careful when you don't see a spot that's really profitable. But as you get better, you see more and more spots that are profitable. So you get to play a few more hands. If instead this player is a loose player and he raises from late position with any, uh, the blinds are 200, 400, and he makes it 900, and that's pretty standard for him, and he raises a lot of pots and he raises the just barely more than the min raise, and you have a hand like King Queen in the small blind with 14 big blinds, you're just going to ship it all in. It's an easy play. Um, if instead you have two aces and 25 big blinds, then you want to three bet them and try to get more money in the pot. If you're on the button and you have that 18 big blinds and you know that, or or say you have 25 or 30 big blinds and there are two stacks in the blinds that have uh, between 12 and 20 big blinds and they're both fairly aggressive players you could flat with aces and get and know that one of them is going to ship all into resteal because now there's a, a raise and a call and they're both from late position and it's such a good spot to trap someone into restealing but you're but you're really gambling with your aces there and you have to know that that's the best option in this spot because if instead you think you can re-raise this guy and very likely get all in with him then you don't need to try and be tricky and risk seeing a flop for this small amount of money with aces and giving people a cheap chance to crack them. So a lot of things to think about in these kinds of situations. And those are just some of them. We could go over uh, potential hands and ways to play things for hours and hours. 
Um, so a lot of my students come to me with very specific hand histories, and we talk about those, and I think that's a great learning opportunity, whereas these um, these more vague questions are tougher, um, certainly tougher on me. They're probably more useful for you just because I put a little more work into answering them, but they're definitely tougher for me because I have to talk about so many different things instead of the specific things that are important in an exact hand history. And then the other part of the question was... Uh, the raise sizing and three bet sizing. Um, correct raise sizing depends on what you want to achieve with your raise. Again, it depends. Usually a three bet to about two and a half times the original raise is in the right range. If it's 200, 400 and the guy makes it a thousand, raising to 2,500 is a reasonable three bet. Some people always three bet to three times the original raise. Um, those people get more folds but they get less action and they can't three bet as often because you're risking too much to win too little. But there are lots of times when three X is the appropriate raise. If there are callers, definitely you want to raise the number from two and a half X. Um, if, if somebody, if it's 200, 400 and somebody raises to a thousand and there are two callers making it 2,500 is suicidal. Every, all three callers, all three people are going to play with you. So instead, when there's a raise to 1,000 and two callers, you might make it 4,000 and put the heat on them. 4,500 maybe put the heat on them if, you're, if you want folds. If you're out of position, you make it even bigger, whether there are callers or not. If there's a raise from the button to 1,000 and you make it 2,500 from the small blind, it's usually correct for the button to call and he's, and he's going to have position on you. And that's why it's correct for him to call because he's going to have position on you. And it's going to make your life hard the rest of the hand. So if the button raises, I might make it 3,200 from the small blind or 3,500 from the small blind just to make sure that I'm either getting him out of there or that he's calling too much to be able to make up that money later when he has position on me because he's going to make money from me the rest of the hand. If we play a million hands, he's going to make money from me over the rest of the hand on average because he's in position and so much easier for him to play. So I want to punish him for doing that. Now, I don't want to raise to 8x and, and guarantee to push him out unless there's a very specific reason for that. That old saw about protecting your hand or he won't call if I do this is usually not the right thing because it doesn't end in because it's the most profitable. The most profitable thing is usually that 3-bet to between three and 4,000. And depending on your hand and your and the stack sizes and your opponent's ranges and all those things that we talked about before, but uh, position and callers are very important. So think about what you want to achieve with your raise and what it costs to achieve that and whether it's worth it. Because if you're putting in the 8x 3-bet, you're really almost always going to win it. But when you, when you win it, you're risking so much to win so little. You know, if you're risking eight times what he raised to win what he raised, um, and when he does come over the top with aces, now you've risked eight X and you've lost it, or you've been forced to call. So think about what things you want to achieve, what things are important and how you can achieve them and whether that's the most profitable decision. So I recited pi to 22,514 decimal places. It took me five hours and nine minutes. Okay. So that was all just phenomenal information. Super helpful. Uh, I it's this is an area that I really need to improve. I need to build my preflop strategy, which includes those hands that I open with, how I react to preflop raises, including my calling and three betting ranges in different situations, and all of those things. Uh, I just I, I feel like I don't really have key principles or ranges defined in advance. I don't really know how I'm going to react until I just do things with things like, you know, pocket tens or ace queen or eight seven suited or pocket threes. When I talk about it, you know, on the podcast or with, with other players, I know the things that I'm supposed to consider. But when that moment actually comes, I think it's basically just my hand strength and if I feel like trapping or not. I don't I don't really know that the decisions are as grounded as they should be. I don't really know that I'm really considering things like player type and stack sizes, tournament situation, my position, hand ranges, my perceived image. I don't know if I'm considering those things at all sometimes or certainly in the right way. So this is a huge growth edge for me. So I don't have a lot 
of value to add here in my own thoughts. Um, but I am looking for a few people out there who are listening who want to walk this journey with me and kind of work through this. I want to really develop a strategy for how I play preflop. Maybe it's even just sharing a Google Doc and we're all contributing to it regularly. But uh, if this is something that you are serious about wanting to build out together, uh, reach out to me, stevefredland at gmail.com, and we can talk further. But I'm looking for just a really small core group of people that, uh, that are committed to kind of working through this, and we can figure that out. But until I figure those things out, uh, I thought it would be good to supplement what Fox and Schneids and Little had to say with some samples from a few other experts. So what I'll have here is a pokerist.com article, also a couple of uh, excerpts from some Dan Harrington books, and then uh, the audio from uh, that I pulled from a Greg Raymer video. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. So this is an article from Pokerist, P-O-K-E-R-I-S-T dot com. And the article is called Preflop Play Part 4, Reacting to a Raise. So I'm actually just going to read this because I thought it was very good. Opening for a raise is almost always the ideal way to enter a pot when the action has been folded around to you. By raising, you project strength, take control of the hand, and stay on the offensive, forcing opponents to react to you instead of the other way around. But what if someone has already come in for a raise and you look down at a playable hand? In this installment of our pre-flop play series, we will help you explore your options by running through a few common situations. The first situation is facing an early position raise with a marginal hand. Of course, your options are to call, fold, or raise, and, and those options still are the same even when a player has already come into the pot. The information out there, however, has changed. When someone opens for a raise, ask yourself these three questions. What position is my opponent opening from? How active has this, a player, how active has this player been at the table? And how strong a hand would he need to make this raise? Let's look at an example. In a nine-handed game, a tight player opens for three and a half times the big blind from under the gun plus one. The action folds to you in the cutoff, and you look down at king of spades, ten of spades. What's your move? Call, raise, or fold? So first, let's look at your opponent's position. He's second to act and feels good enough about his hand to put in a substantial raise with seven people still to act behind him. What range of hands would inspire such confidence? High and medium pairs for sure, as well as big suited cards like ace-king, ace-queen, and ace-jack. Would he raise from early position with king-queen? He's a tight player, so in this situation, that hand might sit at the very bottom of his range. Now let's look at how our king of spades, ten of spades fares against the range of hands your opponent is likely to hold if he's open raising from early position. Versus pocket aces or pocket kings were more than a 4-1 to one underdog. Versus pocket queens, pocket jacks, pocket tens were a 2-1 to one underdog. Versus ace king or king queen were a 7-3 to three underdog. Versus ace queen or ace jack were a 3-2 to two underdog. And versus nines, eights, or sevens were nearly even money or a coin flip. So the king-10 of spades isn't favored to win against any part of this opponent's early position range. Although you would have the advantage of position after the flop, against a tight player this is pretty easy fold. Now the second example is facing a late position raise with a marginal hand. So what if this same player made the same raise but the action had been folded around to him in the cutoff and you're on the button with king-10 of spades? Now a fold isn't so clear-cut. Even though we're talking about an opponent who doesn't play too many hands, his opening raise came from late position. With only three players to get through instead of seven, his range is a lot wider. Even tight players would open hands like pocket threes, jack ten, queen jack, or smaller suited connectors like eight seven of hearts. Up against those hands, king ten of spades is a favorite. Versus pocket threes, you're a 51% favorite. Versus jack ten suited, you're a seven to three favorite. Versus Queen Jack, you're a 3-2 favorite, and versus 8-7 suited, you're a 3-2 favorite. 
against a late position raise from a tight player, calling on the button with King-10 of spades is an appropriate play. You'll have position and may be able to take down the pot with a bet if your opponent misses the flop and checks to you. For more advanced players, a case could be made for a re-raise that could potentially take down the pot right there. However, when facing the more recreational opponents in pokerist games, the best move here is to call and see a flop rather than further inflate the pot while holding a medium strength hand at best. The Gap Concept In several of his books, poker author David Skolansky talks about the gap concept. This refers to the gap between a player's pre-flop opening range and calling range. Simply put, you need a stronger hand to call a raise than to open for a raise yourself. Although today's No Limit Hold'em player has evolved into a more aggressive breed than those playing in Sklansky's era, it's an excellent mantra to have when you are starting out and can help you avoid some costly mistakes. The example laid out above is a good one when it comes to the gap concept. From the cutoff, King-10 of spades is a no-brainer to open if the action has been folded around to you. However, with a tight early position raiser already involved, King-10 of spades doesn't hold a lot of value. In order to call from the cutoff against an early position raiser, you need a much stronger hand. Okay, how about facing a raise with a premium hand? Of course, there will be those times when you're facing a raise and look down at a monster hand. Do your happy dance quietly and internally and then ask yourself those same three questions. What's my, what position is my opponent opening from? How active has this player been at the table? And how strong of a hand would he need to make this raise? In this example, let's say an early position player raises and you look down at pocket queens. In middle position, what's your play? Well, you're certainly not folding pocket queens, so the dilemma here is whether to call or re-raise. With the opening raise coming from an early position, it's safe to assume your opponent has a pretty decent starting hand. Certainly ace-king through ace-ten, any pair, and suited high cards like king-queen are possible. Let's also think about your position. From middle position, five or six players are still left to act. If you simply call the raise with your queens, it could invite more opponents in from late position or the blinds. In this situation, the smart move is to go for a re-raise. If the opening raise was three times the big blind, make it anywhere from eight to ten times the big blind. Re-raising is the right play for several reasons. It is likely to get you heads up in position against the original raiser, who probably has a hand strong enough to call a re-raise. It will also protect your hand against calls from late position and the blinds, which would dilute your substantial pre-flop equity. A pre-flop re-raise with a premium holding like pocket queens gets more money in the pot with what is probably the best hand. So to summarize the article, when reacting to a raise, think about what position it is coming from, how tight or loose your opponent has been playing, and what range of hands he's likely to hold from that position. Remember the gap concept. You need a stronger hand to call a raise than to make a raise yourself. And finally, when facing a raise while holding a premium hand, lead toward re-raising rather than playing it cool and crafty. Get the most money you can in the pot while you have the best hand. Okay, so the audio that you're about to hear now is actually Greg Raymer, who won the World Series of Poker main event years ago. And this is uh, a YouTube video from the World Series of Poker Academy and I thought it was a very good uh, response to this question. I'm Greg Fossilman Raymer. In our last lesson, we talked about the importance of opening the pot for a raise. Now, we're going to examine what you should do if one of your opponent raises in front of you. As with most decisions in poker, there are a number of factors that will help you determine what you should do if a player in front of you opens the pot for a raise. Some specifics we want to consider here are the strength of your hand, our position in the hand, our opponent's position, our opponent's image, and likely range of hands. Let's start with our opponent first. Where is he raising from? Under the gun, early position, middle position, from the cutoff or the button? Remember, on average, players who raise in early position have stronger hands than players who are raising in later position, which means you can narrow down their range of hands before you act. Also, look at the type of player who is raising. Has he been active and playing a lot of hands, or has he been tight and waiting for premium cards? Is he a player who has shown a tendency to gamble more than he should, or is he only betting when he has a real hand? 
Everything you've learned about your opponent by watching his play will help you determine your course of action in this hand. Once we've put our opponent on a range of hands, only then is it time to look at our cards and ask if our hand is good enough to get involved. If so, is it strong enough that we actually want to re-raise our opponent? If we're holding a big hand like aces or queens or ace-king, the answer is obviously yes. We want to re-raise most of the time. With hands like jacks or below, ace-queen, the answer isn't always as clear which is another reason why studying your opponents is important. While you probably want to re-raise a loose aggressive player with a hand like pocket tens, you probably want to take a more conservative line and maybe just call a tighter player and see what develops on the flop. Let's assume your opponent made a standard 3x raise and you look down to find pocket kings in the cutoff seat. You decide to re-raise, but the question now is, how much is the right amount against one opponent? If another player has called the original raise before the action gets to you, increase your re-raise to about four times the original raise, or in this example, about 2,400 chips. Now let's say we're facing that same 3x pre-flop raise, but we're holding a more speculative hand than pocket kings something like pocket nines or king-queen suited. These are hands that we may very well like to see a flop with, but they're not so strong that we necessarily want to re-raise. In this case, calling may be the best option. By just calling in this spot, you may get tight players behind you to still fold their marginal hands, and if a player behind you re-raises, you can now drop your marginal hand without sacrificing too many chips. Finally, Remember that it's always better to call pre-flop raises with speculative hands when you're in position than when you're out of position, because you will be acting after the original raiser throughout the hand. So what do you do when you're not sure what to do? You can't put your opponent on a range of hands, or you can't decide if your hand is strong enough to play against their range. You can always just fold. Remember, poker is about making the best decisions possible. Don't let ego or boredom convince you to play a hand that you shouldn't just because you're hoping to get lucky on the flop or want to outplay this opponent. Fold your hand and wait for a better spot. You will be better off in the long run. So I want to share a little bit of Dan Harrington's thinking on this. This is from the book Harrington on Hold'em. And it's actually on page 190 if you happen to have the book, but it's from part 5 betting before the flop, and he looks at it one specific case here. So uh, this case is the player in third position opened for three times the big blind, and you are in fifth position. So Dan says this, As you might expect, your strategy has to take into account the nature of the raiser. If the raiser is a known, super aggressive player, you re-raise with any hand that you would use for an opening raise from your position. The gap concept does not apply against a player who can make a move with any two cards. You also call with any hand that is slightly stronger than a hand that could make an opening call. If the, re- if the raiser is a solid conservative player, however, the gap concept does apply and you need to be more circumspect. Now you need stronger hands to re-raise. To call, you need a hand that is slightly better than required to open an uncontested pot. Here are my detailed rules. Holding pairs. With aces or kings, you want to call occasionally and mostly re-raise. I would use a mix of 85% re-raises and 15% calls. When you re-raise, you want to put in two or three times the amount that your opponent put in. With queens, you play but a larger percentage of calls, maybe 70% re-raise and 30% call. With jacks and tens, you still play but, again, increase the percentage of calls. Now I would re-raise only 20% and call the other 80% of the time. The medium pairs, nines through sevens, are typically calling hands. The small pairs, sixes through deuces, are not playable. Just throw them away. When you're holding ace-x, here ace-king is worth a call whether suited or unsuited. With ace-queen, I would call if suited and throw it away if unsuited. Fold any smaller ace-x holdings against a strong player. Against a player who is both aggressive preflop and weak, which is a delicious combination, Re-raise with ace-king through ace-ten to isolate them. 
If you're holding king-queen, king-jack, or queen-jack, these are simply trap hands following in an early raise. Throw them away. And in terms of holding suited connectors, fold them all. So that was the case where the player in third position, so pretty early, opened for three times a big blind and we are in fifth position. So just one example from one of the Dan Harrington books. Okay, well as you guys know, one of our great partners is Next Level Poker, a new tour, and they just finalized, uh, as I announced before, their first official tour stop. And so I wanted to give Fox a little bit of time on the podcast to go into some detail around this uh, sort of exciting kickoff. So for the next few minutes, Fox is going to share with you uh, this event, Next Level Poker, uh, down in Iowa. So after that, we'll wrap up. Thanks once again for listening. Fox here from Next Level Poker. We have booked and announced our first event this week. We are going to be at Diamond Joe Worth Casino in Northwoods, Iowa. We're really excited about it. They're actually the first place we approached and they said yes. Like That's exactly what we wanted. Um, it's a bit of a home field advantage for us, and then it's only a few hours from Minnesota. A lot of Minnesota players already know about Diamond Joe. They have huge bad beat jackpots, so a lot of players go down there and play cash games. So after our uh, All In For Africa kind of tune-up to make sure our broadcast software is working well, then November 5th at 12 p.m. is the very first kickoff. It's the step-up number one at Diamond Joe's. Um, we won't be broadcasting the step-up events, but we will be broadcasting all of the later events. So the step-ups work like satellites and a little like bankroll builders in that you keep playing until one in six players remains. If you start with 60 people, you play down to 10. Stack size at that point doesn't matter when you get to 10 people like a satellite. Everybody gets a seat into step number two, but everybody also gets $150 in cash. So it's a $55 buy-in, one in six players gets $150, and a seat into step two, which is the next Sunday, November 12th, and that's a $95 buy-in seat. From that, one in six players earns $250 and a seat into step three. And step three is on November 19th, the next Sunday. These are all at noon. They have, for years, had a two o'clock tournament at Diamond Joe's on Sundays. These are at noon, so make sure you set your alarm. The November 19th event, step up number three, is a 200 plus 10. One in six players will earn $270 and a seat into the Blue Shark Optics Championship, which is a $750 buy-in. That's our main event. We'll talk about it in a second. Then the real series starts November 21st at 6 p.m. That's a Tuesday. And that is the Pocket Fives Invitational. This is a unique thing we do that no one else does. It is... Sponsored by PocketFives.com, who are good friends of mine and also a sponsor of the tour. And we have an invite-only single table that we broadcast on the Tuesday of the week of any of our events. So you can go to nextlevel.poker and read about how you can win your seat into the Invitational. There's no way to buy into this thing. You have to be invited or win your seat. So we have sponsor exemptions. For a number of sponsors, um, Pocket Fives will get to pick someone to put in. Blue Shark Optics will get to pick someone. The venue will get to choose someone. We have our own sponsor exemption. <clears throat> and then there are a number of ways to win your way in. There's a Twitter contest, a Facebook contest. Those are both easy. The Facebook is two questions, and uh, then you're in. The Twitter contest is just a retweet. And you can find it at NL Poker. You can go find our Twitter account and just retweet that. And then there's a draft a local contest where you can nominate someone else to get in. And whoever gets the most nominations will be there so we can get the most entertaining local who can come make the broadcast interesting. And we have a home game contest. Send Tweet a picture of your home game. Uh, you can check our Twitter account or check out um, next level po next level dot poker and click on invitational and learn how to get into the home game competition or any of these other uh, all these four ways to win a seat in the pocket fives invitational that pays out some cash prizes um, fourth place is a training package third place is a hundred dollars plus a gear package from our sponsors second place is two hundred dollars plus a gear package from our sponsors and first place is a big prize package that includes being our pro for the week. You get an entry into the main event, which is 750. You get a 
bunch of gear from sponsors. You get a signed book from me. You get a pair of Blue Shark Optics. And you get um, coverage from us as our featured pro for the week. We publish a bio and a picture of you. We follow you through all the events and report on how you're doing as if you're the big deal at the event. I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it gives people a chance who've, who've never played a poker tournament before could potentially retweet this thing and get into the Invitational and be our featured pro for the week. I'm kind of looking forward to that happening at some point, making a big deal out of somebody who's not used to it. Then on November 22nd, uh, the Pocket Fives Invitational, by the way, November 21st at 6 p.m. Then November 22nd at 6 p.m. is the tune-up. And that is sponsored by Red Chip Poker, our training sponsor. It's a 200 plus 10 buy-in. It uses the same structure as the Blue Shark Optics Championship, so it helps you get ready for it. And you can work on your game getting ready for the Blue Shark Optics Championship while winning a bunch of money in the tune-up. So that starts November 22nd at 6 p.m. It's a standard no-limit hold'em tournament, a $210 buy-in. And then we have the Blue Shark Optics Championship. That's always our main event, sponsored by Blue Ship Blue Shark Optics. $750 buy-in, re-entry is allowed, 40-minute levels, and all of the levels are in there. Same structure as the tune-up. Uh, day Flight 1A is November 24th at 5 p.m. Flight 1B is November 25th at 10 a.m. And Flight 1C is November 25th at 5 p.m. And then Day 2 will be Sunday, November 26th at noon. We also have at every stop a charity event. We want to give back and we want to help people. We'd like this charity thing to grow and have even more charity involvement. What we do right now is on the Sundays of our stops, <clears throat> excuse me, we do a 150 plus 10 charity tournament. $25 of that goes to, in this case, Francis Lauer Youth Services, which is a company that helps um, youth who are in trouble or at risk in Des Moines, Iowa. They're a favorite charity of diamond joe and we looked into them and agree they're doing fantastic work and this is definitely somebody we want to support so november 26th at 3 p.m is the next level charity event uh we'd love to see lots of people in that one you can come watch the final table while you're in the charity event we'll be we'll be uh three hours into day two at that point so the the final table won't be far away and after the charity event you can come by and say hi we'll be there either broadcasting or getting ready to broadcast and we'd love to see you come out for the charity event so many thanks to all of our sponsors blue shark optics dgenware.com bad beat brewing the rec poker podcast of course blend straddle productions over standing law Red Chip and Pocket Fives. Really appreciate all the help that we got from you guys. If you go to nextlevel.poker, you'll see right on the front page our full schedule for the event. You can uh, Everything's downloadable. You can download the schedule, the blind structures, the payout structures. And we hope to see you at the event uh, the week of Thanksgiving and in some of the step-up events. Okay, well, there you have it. As always, I'm open to your feedback on Facebook, Twitter, or email, stevefredland at gmail.com. Next week, we'll start looking at some post-flop play considerations. Thanks much. 